Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals in Energy podcast. Jake and I had fun interviewing Tisha Schuler for this episode. Tisha is a Stanford grad, was a VP at Tetratech, served as the president and CEO of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, and now she runs her own consulting firm, Adamantine. Uh, she's a wealth of knowledge about the oil and gas industry, has great perspective on millennials, and she just released a new book titled The Game Changers Playbook. I've read it. It's fantastic. You should check it out. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Okay. Well, welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals in Energy podcast. Uh, my name is Mark Heineman, and I'm joined with by my co-host, Jake Adamson, and we've got a great guest today. Uh, she is the author of The Game Changers Playbook, uh, Tisha Schuler, and runs a firm here in Denver called Adamantine. Tisha, did I pronounce that correctly? You sure did. Adamantine Energy. Excellent. So Tisha will give a little intro uh, when we record the intro portion of the podcast, but why don't you go ahead and uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself and your uh, career and how you got to where you are now. Sure, that sounds great, Mark. And um, Jacob, thanks so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of um, all the various young professional organizations that support the oil and gas industry, and you'll hear throughout this why. Um, but I came to my current role uh, running Adam and Teen Energy, which where we're focused on future-proofing the oil and gas industry because of my really weird history of which I'll give you a short high drama version. I was an environmental activist, so I actually used to lay down and protest against the war for oil um, in college to, to date myself. And when I moved to Colorado, I um, am your average Boulder County uh, hippie raising my kids on um, homemade baby food and, and toys without plastics and so forth. And I worked at uh, an environmental consulting firm for 15 years. And then through various twists and turns and, and, um, and changes of understanding and commitment to following science, I ended up running the Colorado Oil and Gas Association and representing the oil and gas industry in what we could really only nicely call the fracking wars uh, for five years. And then since then, I have consulted to the oil and gas industry uh, because I love this industry, but I do think we are uh, in, in really existential peril if we don't shift the way we engage in defining and leaning into the energy future. So now that's what I dedicate myself to. And I believe that our secret weapon is millennials that work within the oil and gas industry. I'm sure we'll get to that, but that's a lot of why I have such huge passion and interest for young professionals working in our industry and am and devoted to elevating them, learning from them, and figuring out how to, to put you all front and center. What a transition, I guess, to go from environmental activism, then environmental consulting to Colorado Oil and Gas Association. I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that transition a bit. Was it a gradual conversion or what made you develop this, this love for the industry? 
Yeah, so it was gradual. I I am a geologist and environmental scientist, and so I have committed myself through my life to you know go to the data and look at the source and try to come to my own conclusions. And so one one pivotal moment, and I talk about this in my first book, Accidentally Adamant, for those that that are finding themselves on a similar journey, um, where I was I was permitting a gas storage facility, so one acre facility. But when I went out to do the biological assessment, to oversee the biological assessment, a huge wind farm had gone in. And I asked myself, wait, how? I, it's taken me two years just to get to this stage of permitting for my one acre gas storage facility, but probably a 50 acre wind farm went in. And I'm not opposed to wind, I'm an all of the above advocate. But the question of why this was environmental versus my storage facility made me start looking at energy density and footprint and trade-offs. And that just started me down this path of really getting that oil and gas is this extraordinary, unparalleled energy-dense fuel for what we need to accomplish as a world. And then that led me down the path of getting to know the oil and gas industry. And because truly I thought all Republicans were evil before I worked at COGA. So I, I then I got to meet a few Republicans and um, my whole political journey is another discussion entirely. Um, but all of that is a continual commitment to look at the data evolve my thinking and never get stuck. So even whatever we talk about today, maybe if we talk in a year, I might say, yeah, I changed my mind about that. So I'm committed to changing my mind, to evolving my thinking, to growing my perspective. Tisha, I absolutely love that. It sounds like you and I have the same, we'll call it a scientific philosophical data about energy density. Uh, You know, I went to school in CU Boulder. And uh, so I understand the Boulder bubble and how it can be an echo chamber and how you can become convinced of one way of thinking uh, that really doesn't make a ton of sense. And I, I had the same experience of tracing energy density and figuring out, wow, the most energy dense fuels seem to be the easiest to exploit and the the best for humanity. So I'm not surprised that most people, when they follow the data, they they come to realize that, yeah, fossil fuels are fantastic from that perspective. And then one step further to nuclear is even better. Yeah, I totally concur. And in fact, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but the the oil and gas industry, we totally get that. But we have our own nonsensical uh, worldview where we think we get to stop there. Like the world needs us and we have the best fuels. Um, and so there's the, the next um, imperative, which is that we say, what's next? How are we going to lead there? How are we going to innovate to it? What's our entrepreneurial destiny to bring the next wave of energy to the public? And instead, a lot of times we can get caught defending the status quo. It would be silly to rest on our laurels and say, hey, look how great we are. Uh, and it, when in fact, we, we could say we got us this far, we transformed the world prosperity. We made the world have the potential to raise people out of poverty. Um, but now what? What are we going to do better? And how are we going to make it more affordable, more reliable and let, have less carbon? I love that. Well, we'll dive into your book in just a little bit, but I want to talk about your career just a bit more. Um, I mean, you you went to Stanford, you have worked in for COGA, I mean, President of Koga, that's quite the responsibility here in Colorado. You're kind of at the at the helm of um, leading the environmental and regulatory movement, and having and being the industry advocate. How do, how did you find your way to be involved with Koga, and why did you opt to do it? Yeah, so I was super naive, um, which is maybe a theme. And so as a geologist, my husband's a hydrogeologist. Um, this was when the fracking wars were just getting started. 
And I thought, you know, there's a lot of things to be concerned about with oil and gas, but fracking is not the right thing. So I'm, I want to get involved with COGA to help start breaking down some of these misunderstandings of the public. So my intention was really to bring education. Um, and and it, was, it didn't take very long for my involvement in COGA for um, one board member to recruit me to be the CEO. I was not by any means the top choice. The liberal from Boulder <laughs> was not the obvious choice to run COGA. But at that time, I had a business background. Background. So I, for my environmental consulting firm, I did turnarounds of offices. So I turned offices losing money into profit centers at the same time that I ran oil and gas consulting projects. So I would say I slipped in with my business acumen because Koga was in need of something of a reorganization and leadership overhaul, and then found myself in this position of learning about the legislature, politics, media. And in in my book, Accidentally Adamant, I cover like the really disastrous steps I took along the way, quite humbling to learn uh, just about how politics works, how the media works. So I I would say now I'm a happily jaded person that that one would expect from that whole um, experience. And I've I've tried not to let it tamper though my optimism and enthusiasm for the future, but operating in that world is is definitely very challenging. Be exhausting. Um, So transitioning out of Koga and then founding Adamantine, Let's chat about Adamantine and what kind of work you do for energy companies. So I have the best job in the whole world because I got to invent it. And um, and and I'm really started because after leaving Koga, I was entirely unfit to work for another human. Because, you know, once you've run this trade association, I had 40 board members. We made decision by consensus. It was like this insane level of both responsibility and independence. And so I decided, you know, what do I want to do? Okay, I want to help companies lead into the energy future. Now, there wasn't a huge uh, market for that five years ago. And so we're really, in some ways, fortunate that the industry is evolving along with what we're talking about at Adam and Teen. But now we work with company boards, executive teams, um, and, and other, you know, leaders, sometimes uh, environmental NGOs, sometimes think tanks to construct either um, collaborations, sometimes that's studies, sometimes that's collaborating behind the scenes on regulation, or in many cases, helping companies identify their decarbonization toolbox their decarbonization goals. And these might not be things that you see out in the public because companies are coming up with three and five year strategies. One one really interesting tangent I'll take you down is that every executive I talk to in the oil and gas industry, when I say you've got to set an aspirational goal, um, which we'll talk about when we get to the book, you have to set an aspirational decarbonization goal. Without exception, they're like, if I can't do the math, I am not putting out a goal. Because these are engineers who have had to deliver on their goals for their entire career. And I'm saying, yeah, you just have to say, we want to do this and then we're going to wave our arms around and invent some stuff and invest here and there. And then and then we might get there by 2050. This is a non-starter for oil and gas executives. So a lot of my job is, is something about creating a different mindset around aspiration, around innovation that is that truly is more um, miracle conducted here in our spreadsheet. Um, and so that's an in, really interesting and fun part of what I do. I call it therapy for oil and gas executives. Love that. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I empathize with it strongly because as an engineer, I feel that uh, deeply in my career. Right? I, I'm challenged to make goals, meet goals. And if I can't figure it out on a spreadsheet or on paper, then 
uh, making it become a reality is, is very challenging. So, but I agree with you. I think there, there needs to be, um, we'll call it an element of dreaming for the future and aspiring to have broad reaching goals that are going to make a difference and make an impact um, that we can, we can strive towards and try and innovate towards. I think that's something that you mentioned in the book that we do very well as an industry is innovate to solve problems. And if we don't have the goals set, uh, to, to try and solve those problems, then we'll never face, face those challenges. So, um, that's right. But when we look at operational efficiency, we can have a private conversation about, you know, like what, what could really be a game changer here? You know, the, the, but, but no one's going to publish that out in the public. So this is a different ask of, of not only dreaming, but communicating that dream without being able to see steps. It's a really interesting problem. I haven't totally solved it. And it's actually in conversations like this that I continue to think about what role that plays and why it's important. But it would be, I would love to actually hear from you guys, like as, as emerging leaders in the oil and gas industry, is it important to you to see the oil and gas industry committing to decarbonization? What do you guys think? Am I onto something or do you think it's a miss? That's a great question. I was about to ask you next in your book, you talk about how millennials are the future. Mark and I both are millennials. And I think by being in the industry, we might have a different perspective of oil and gas, but how do we take a carbon-based fuel and then if we're looking for a carbon neutral future or lower carbon emissions, how does an industry that is fossil fuels have a place in that? How do we, and how, yeah. how do millennials approach that and change that narrative? I'll, I'll try and help you out, Jake. The, the paradox that I see in the industry behind decarbonization, which I love that you try and tackle the problem in your book and challenge executives and challenge the industry to approach this idea with a sense of optimism and uh, as a challenge that we can uh, undertake and succeed on. Uh, the primary revenue stream for my company, for oil and gas companies, for any large multinational major is fossil fuels that we're going to light on fire and then put carbon in the atmosphere. <laughs> and if you're asking the companies to decarbonize and stop doing that and offering that primary product, which is their predominant revenue stream, then I, again, I, I call it a paradox because I don't, I've not been able to come up with a feasible solution that you have a competent or realistic reinvestment of profits from that revenue stream into a different technology, which I, I think it's a, it's a challenge. So I'm going to try to go on a circuitous journey that says why I think millennials are so important and, and how we can set decarbonization targets that ultimately help us connect to millennials. <laughs> we'll see if I can do it. And then I, if I get lost on a tangent, you guys can bring me back. Well, we'll bring you so, back. Yeah. <laughs> so millennials um, outside of oil and gas companies are dominating in the population through at least 2050. So boomers have, have dominated population and raw, raw numbers up until you know, maybe five or 10 years ago. Um, and millennials are now, the oldest millennials are turning 40 
in 2021. So this is a generation in their peak civic, economic, and political relevance. And in fact, now they rival boomers in the electorate. So now when companies are talking to investors, regulators, elected officials, all the people that have some kind of say about whether their projects go forward, their funding um, stays consistent. These, uh, in many cases now, decision makers outside of industry are millennials. So understanding that millennials lean left dramatically by something like 30 points, that even where they're conservative, they care about climate and they're suspicious of fossil fuels. We can now see, okay, our external audience, which isn't going to change for the next 30 years or so is of a different demographic and has different priorities than the way our industry is structured. So we have the opportunity to bring our millennials, which in most companies are 30 to 40% of the workforce and put them external facing at the strategy tables, at the community engagement tables, because um, like both of you have said, you have this view, you have a different perspective on how the external world views oil and gas, even as you understand its importance and the obstacles to it, to it um, being brought to its maximum potential, you have you have an understanding of this other worldview that says, we don't need this fuel anymore. This is our grandpa's fuel. We're done with it. Um, and when you have that perspective, you, you're more insightful to how we can bring it forward. So that'll bring me to this idea of why set aspirational goals. And millennials are a big target for this idea that I am uh, relentless about promoting because setting an aspiration changes a conversation. If an oil and gas executive sits across from a millennial green investor and says, you need us, let me show you the, the math on 84% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. We have a non-starter, we're in conflict. But if an industry executive sits down and says, hey, I'm concerned about climate. I too want to decarbonize the energy future as quickly as possible. And I actually think my industry has the R&D, the innovation, the scale, the people to do it. Now you have space for a conversation, a conversation about the reality of the next 10, 20, 30 years. We need pipelines. We need oil and gas. Um, we need natural gas in our buildings. We need the opportunity to fuel our cars um, outside of this vision of electrify everything. So we're trying to create a space for a pragmatic conversation. So the first aspiration is just saying we share a vision of the future around prosperity, around cost, around uh, the environment, and then looking for ways to have a shared conversation. I love that. That's what an opportunity to reframe the conversation and generate a safe space. And I love how you give the example of a millennial green investor and an oil and gas executive that might be the the new school and the old school way of thinking, because the, the capital being invested in energy projects is really going to decide and determine what gets funded, what gets researched, what, how, how we transition our infrastructure moving forward. And if you have an investment community that exists and wants to invest in green fuels, but the technology isn't as economical or profitable, um, then I, th I worry that there'll be a disconnect between those two without, like you say, creating pragmatic or a safe space to have a pragmatic conversation. And I think the way they framed it is phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's the be, uh, understand before being understood. Yeah, I, I would even take it one step further. Um, and this is, was a hard conclusion for me to come to because I've dedicated the last 10 years of my life to trying to 
educate and engage on behalf of the oil and gas industry. But I'd say we failed. We lost. Like the public moved on. A majority of people in developed Western uh, countries think that we don't need fossils anymore and that they're on some level part of the problem. So I put the, the next move in our court. And so, for example, if I'm advising a company and they're going to go talk to their investors and there's any environmental topic on the table, it's time to bring a millennial into the conversation. It's, trying to, it's time to up in the expectations of what they expect and to open the conversation with the first move. I think we have to come to the table first. We have to articulate our commitment. And that, that's hard because we feel defensive and, and um, undervalued and misunderstood. And all those things are true. But the, the truth is we... It, it is our responsibility now to shift the nature of the conversation, to change the paradigm, and to craft a leadership role, even as people are, are saying that they don't need us anymore. I love that idea, because my next question was going to be, you know, whose responsibility is it? Like, is it the millennials' responsibility to reach out to the industry and say, okay, how can we work together on some solutions here? Just in my personal life, I feel like I have that conversation a lot where it's like, oh, Jake, you're the oil and gas consultant. Of course, you're, you know, saying how it's important and necessary because that's what you work on. So I was curious, in your book, you have a bunch of examples of how oil and gas companies are investing in these technologies. Um, I was wondering if you could discuss a few of your favorites. Sure. So I'm actually quite agnostic about um, innovations, technologies, and um, what's going to be the next big thing. What I'm super passionate about is massive investments in R&D, unconventional partnerships. So I love it when I see an environmental NGO or a left-leaning think tank and a company and a university collaborating on uh, components of the energy future. Things I think are undoubtedly in the toolbox. Hydrogen, hydrogen for industrial decarbonization, for mixing with natural gas, uh, perhaps as a fuel or or related to fuel cells. So um, hydrogen is going to be an important part of the mix and oil and gas companies should be thinking about where that fits into their long-term vision and strategy. C- companies of, of any size, anywhere in the value chain. Carbon capture, um, utilization and sequestration also has to be part of the mix and really buys us some space to think about negative emission offsets. I am when I imagine the energy future, I imagine we're still using oil and gas in 30, 40, 50 years. I just imagine we found a way to make it net carbon negative um, because people don't want to give things up. And we have this massive amount of infrastructure that has its own environmental footprint if we try to replace it. So I think carbon capture sequestration is a really important part of that. And then other small things we see that fit in along the way, a renewable natural gas, you know, bi- which is a form of biogas, some kind of certified gas or differentiated gas based on its methane intensity. Same with oil, a kind of certified or differentiated oil. I think these are all steps along the way that will create a decarbonization toolbox. Sure, your goal is noble, and I think your mission is excellent. Uh, meaning, I, I, what I heard was you. you are agnostic towards the energy technology. You don't want to pick a winner, but you want to change the discussion and change the mentality behind these investments. Because to me, it feels like, okay, well, 
like you said, we've lost the game, which I w- would never have believed it when I was exiting school in 2011, 2012, 2013, and thinking about what I wanted to do for a career. I was like, wind and solar is the, are these ridiculously small industries. And yeah, there's some growth, but they're still, you know, terrible technologies compared to oil and gas. Surely the most energy dense fuel is going to win. Fast forward to 2020, 2021, and we have now a focus on wind and solar technologies because they've become, I don't know, these sexy and understandable uh, energy and electricity generation sources, but they're arguably not the best um, for many reasons. You know, they, they work in certain situations, but in your book, you list an abundant number of examples for uh, what some of the large majors are doing and projects that they've invested in. I'll just list a couple here that I thought were fantastic. Uh, Exxon with a $100 million partnership with NREL, um, National Energy Technology Lab. Uh, Chevron doing a joint venture for a direct air capture technology. Um, Oxy having their own subsidiary called Oxy Low Carbon Ventures. Like Those are projects and uh, investments in R&D. I think that you're mentioning that are direct examples for how the industry is trying to refocus their efforts and investments to build better technologies that can be more successful than kind of what the status quo is the investment community might be supporting right now. So that's exactly right. And I love, um, I love, well, I love all those examples because what they do, if you're sitting in a meeting and I get a chance to sit in lots of meetings like this with a regulator whose job on some level is to squeeze the oil and gas industry out of existence, even if that's not the stated intention, but in the, the overarching paradigm right now of climate, oil and gas is a problem that you reduce. That's the way people think about it. And then as an industry, we fight for our right to pollute our little bit. Like that's that's not a winning formula. Whereas if you go into these conversations and say, okay, what do you need to accomplish greenhouse gas wise in your state? Okay, what if we were a net negative partner? What if we not only reduced industry's emissions over a 10 to 20 year time frame, but we started providing offsets for some of those industries that you don't know how to take on? Ag, transportation, uh, big industrial uh, emissions. What if we were thought partners with you on sequestration, on hydrogen, on storage? Because we have all that kind of know-how. Now, even relatively small companies, whether EMP or midstream, can participate in that mindset. We're your partner. We're innovating. We're thinking about our role. A, mid, a gas midstream could think about how to move RNG. Uh, a, an EMP company could think about, is there a role for sequestration in 30 years in their fields? These are all conversations that indi- indicate a different mindset and break the expected paradigm. Now you're, we're a partner. We're an asset. We're someone moving with them instead of someone that they're trying to squeeze. So that's what I love about, about all those things. And I've gotten to see in real time faces change when, for example, Oxy, if Oxy Low Carbon Ventures is mentioned, this people light up. Oh, what is it? Because really secretly, no one wants to give up their SUV. They don't want to have to move in, into drive a little Prius in the snow. No, they do not. So we all have a shared, maybe unstated ambition to maintain our quality of life and increase our prosperity. And if we can help chart navigate that way, um, we can speak to some of these maybe unstated shared ambitions. I like that. Yeah. We, those of us that live in Colorado know that a Prius in the snow is a, a death trap. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Driving a go-kart. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not a great solution. <laughs> cool. I think we touched on a bunch of your 
points already uh, from your book. So game, book again, Game Changers Playbook, uh, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption. I had the chance to read it last week when I was prepping for this interview um, and was pleasantly surprised at all of the points that you make and how you structured the book. And I, I thought you just did a fantastic job presenting ideas that I was oblivious to. So, you know, we've mentioned millennials already. Uh, I It didn't even occur to me that millennials were such a large percentage of the demographic and that they would be so impactful and influential in the future. So, seemed obvious. You know, when I think about my Bayesian view of society and how many people exist, it's, yeah, I see that there are a bunch of millennials, but I also feel like I'm kind of caught in the bubble of being one of them. Um, and I love how you outlined uh, that, there, that we're going to have so much impact and influence in the future. Um, so we touched on activism with investors, uh, but I wanted to touch on some of the values that you kind of outlined in chapter three. Uh, embrace disruption, share aspirations, and then expand sphere of influence. Uh, I, I feel like we've talked a little bit about share aspirations, but let's touch on uh, embrace disruption and expanding sphere of influence. Sure. So embrace disruption is so hard because in our heart of hearts, we all just want things to stay the same or get incrementally better. <laughs> um, and, and But disruption is, you know, the only thing that never changes is that we experience change. And so a lot of embracing disruption is just our industry taking that forward step to say, whatever the disruption is, we're going to win at it. And that at this moment, that happens to be expectations for decarbonization. So whether it was uh, whale oil shifting to kerosene lanterns, kerosene lanterns shifting to electric lights, the invention of the uh, internal combustion engine, our industry figures out how to innovate its way. And there are, of course, winners and losers in every disruption. But the mindset that our industry can turn back to over 150 years is we're, we're going to win. We're we're going to find a way through this. And I think companies that are have that entrepreneurial mindset and tap into 150 years of innovation are just positioned entirely differently. Um, because if you're, if you're arguing for the past, you're not inventing the future. Whereas we just should be always thinking about what's next, what's next, how are we going to take um, our society there? And, and that leads to lead, leading civically. There, there's two things that happened in 2020 that required big companies to exercise really broad leadership. The pandemic and whether that was working from home, doing PPE drives for healthcare workers, figuring out how to support communities devastated by the pandemic. Oil and gas companies rise to that moment. And it's that kind of civic leadership that we should just focus on decarbonization society needs us, we show up. Oil and gas companies show up again, again, and again, if there's a natural disaster. We just need to think of climate as something that, that society is asking us to show up for. And the second area were the protests around racial equity and justice. And companies, including oil and gas companies across the spectrum said, we're going to take this as a permanent call to action and an ongoing call to be better. And this is an area that companies will have to work, I think, in perpetuity. I think each of us as individuals and as leaders will be working in perpetuity to inform and create racial equity and justice. 
And both of these areas inspire millennials. So this is a great way to empower and connect to our millennial workforce, involving them in both of these areas, um, and also a way to connect to millennials outside of our business. We're civic leaders taking on things like economic recovery and the health crisis. We're civic leaders taking on racial equity and justice. And these are these are squarely in the in the wheelhouse of how we like to be a part of the communities within which we operate. Awesome. So if you're giving advice to a young professional and if they want to become more involved because they're a millennial and they uh, feel empowered and impassioned to contribute, uh, what would be some of your best tidbits of advice? How, how could they become involved? How could they make a difference in their organization? So millennials who are listening and Generation Z, I'm so glad you're in the oil and gas industry. Please stay. I know you've talked to your parents or your spouse or your uh, friends about whether you should leave the industry, don't. Because the industry is going to transform under your guidance and your leadership. So the way I think uh, millennials can participate is, one, continue to educate yourself. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're devoted to your continual evolution. So you're on the right track. But the most trusted person to talk about the oil and gas industry is someone who works in the oil and gas industry. So we have to overcome our reticence. You know, we're at a at a, well, someday again, we'll be at a picnic or a, you know, a, a baseball game and people will say things and our, our instinct is to shy away from a conversation around climate, around oil and gas. But in actuality, we have a really unique perspective to say, let me tell you what it's like from my vantage point. And people actually will be interested and listen and be surprised. And that whole idea of, ah, you have to say that, you know, like you said, Jacob, you work in the oil and gas industry. It's really powerful to say, I choose to work in the oil and gas industry. I, I choose to be a part of the, the industry that's going to transform energy and climate as we know it. So I think being informed, being engaged, and then it's each of our responsibility to be thinking creatively about the decarbonization toolbox. I don't know where the answer lies, but I know it, it lies somewhere. And the last thing I'll say is when your leadership takes any teeny tiny baby step, decarbonization, racial equity and justice, send a note to the CEO, send a note to the executive vice president and tell them, thank you. I love this leadership. And the reason I say that is because the number one thing executives say to me is I was so surprised by the outpouring of enthusiasm from our millennial staff. So they have no idea because you've been sitting quietly in the meetings. They have no idea of the hunger for this kind of transformational leadership. So encourage it, support it, be a part of it, volunteer your time and energy um, to, to get out there and be a part of the transformation. I'm going to piggyback on some of your recommendations uh, because, well, number one, what you just recommended, send a note to your senior VP or your CEO. Uh, I, <laughs> I think it's very intimidating for young employees and young professionals to reach out to senior executives and they because they have this mentality that they're just going to be wasting their time, which in my opinion is radically false. And you should be communicating with senior executives as frequently as possible if you want to further your career and expand your sphere of influence and mm -hmm. progress in a professional setting. I, it, it's baffling to me that more people aren't and it's easy for me because I'm very extroverted. I can talk to anyone. I've, I've had lots of practice at this, but I I'm just flabbergasted at my peers that are too shy to do so because they feel like they're going to be embarrassed. So fantastic recommendation there. I also love your mentality. And it, it brings me back to a mantra that my, my dad had always when growing up was uh, any challenge can be viewed as an opportunity or a predicament. You know, it, we, we look at the decarbonization challenge as something that 
can, can either be a disaster for the industry and eliminate our entire revenue stream or a tremendous opportunity to take the manufacturing, the uh, inventing expertise, the innovation that we have that I've seen through a bunch of service companies in the industry developing new technologies to solve real problems. Um, those, those same principles of uh, expanding our knowledge about what it takes to, to develop new technologies can apply to any of the decarbonization efforts. So I, I love those two points. Tisha, you, you bring up uh, a point in your book in, uh, that I think is wonderful, and it's humans' ability to believe intrinsically and deeply in two thoughts that might be contradictory. And you phrase it as uh, both of these things are true. Let's, let's chat about that a little bit. Oh, I love it that you brought that up. So I, I have a weekly email of that name. Both of these things are true. So it, it, any of your listeners who are hungry for more exploration of this topic um, are, walk, are welcome and encouraged to subscribe. So this really was born of desperation, this idea, because I had to go speak to the Canadian pipeliners and they were facing a devastating federal regulation and a huge um, amount of projects that were stalled because of this regulation and then a just a impossible differential on the price of oil in Canada versus the U.S. This was about two years ago. And I had my normal like, let's go educate them and oil is so great. And I just thought this is not going to work. Like these guys are going to look at me like, tell us something we don't, we know how great we are. No one else does. What are we going to do differently? And so the idea of two things being true at the same time was my own challenge to myself to break out of the defensive reactionary stance that the industry had gotten into. And it's taken me about two years to really have the courage to have the conversation we're having today, which is to say, we lost the war of public opinion. It's our first move. Let's get out there and invent the energy future. And so the, the two fundamental ideas that are true is that the world needs oil and gas and will for a really long time. And the majority of people in the developed world don't think we need oil and gas anymore. And if you can hold these two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time, then you have to think differently, creatively, proactively, innovatively about where are we going? How are we going to do this differently? And I and my team at Adam and Teen, we try to challenge ourselves and our clients every day to say, What's a new way to expand the conversation, change the conversation? And, and I will say for your listeners, this is not done. We have not completed this task. So it, I would hope that you are going to hear something I said today and have a better idea and send it to me and replace my thinking with something better or a new angle or something. And, and the key is we can't be tired. We can't be resigned. We have to be enthusiastic about creating our future and leading into it. Um, and so that's where both of these things are true comes in is to just say, I can, I can evolve past this dichotomy. And, and we know this in life, right? Nothing's ever just have one argument with your spouse. Like nothing is, is black and white. We have to have a more um, discerning, creative interpretation in order to, to break things up and move in new directions. That's excellent. I mean, you put it so eloquently that there's this gray area. And I think, uh, like you explained, it starts with us as the industry asking questions that gets the millennials and the people who believe that we don't need oil and gas saying, yes, like the environment is important. Like We need to work to reduce our carbon emissions. Like, yes, yes. Once we get that momentum of yes, we're all on the same side here. Um, I think we can make positive change. 
Yeah, you know, Jacob, you, you came up with such a great idea that I love, which is, I think, getting popularity, this idea of saying yes and, and the the yes and is a, one of the paradigm shifts. Yes, we want to address decarbonization and we want to meet the energy demands of the present. So talk to us about like, what do you think is a reasonable path? And actually the environmental justice, we haven't talked about this, but the the big movement around environmental justice has actually created a really interesting space also to have this conversation because we can't just drive up costs of energy um, like California is doing and actually have an equitable environment. Never mind the, the need to raise people out of poverty all over the world, 3 billion people to raise to some sort of middle-class life. So the yes and by starting the conversation differently, hopefully we can create space to talk about, now how can we get there? And are we willing to have some trade-offs in the interim? Are we willing to have higher carbon emissions for the next 10 years and net carbon negative later because we're, the industry can bring carbon uh, reducing technologies to play. So th- those are the, I, I love that you that you said and, because I just think that is one of the keys to, to us transforming the paradigm within which we're having these conversations. I, I want to touch on one more point and then uh, chat a little bit about your Energy Thinks podcast and how, how our listeners might be able to get a hold of you. But in your book, you, you mentioned that m- many of the executives you've spoken with or some that you've spoken with actually support a carbon tax or some some way of adding in a pricing mechanism to uh, help the market make the correct move towards a decarbonized future, which I found fascinating. And it is a yes and idea of we can't have higher energy prices because it uh, negatively and disproportionately impacts lower income communities uh, that have to pay more for their energy. And interestingly, some energy executives support a carbon tax, which in my opinion, would inevitably raise energy prices. How do we deal with that? Yeah, so there's a there's a lot of room to navigate around a price on carbon. And it's something yeah. that I think is um, absolutely necessary, although not inevitable. Like I do think we could end up in a regulatory framework where the whole objectives are just to squeeze carbon out of, emissions out of the system. And it actually makes more sense for the oil and gas industry for there to be a price on carbon. Because in many instances, we're going to be able to reduce our emissions and provide offsets in the future with things like um, carbon sequestration, subsurface carbon sequestration. So I think it makes sense that big oil and gas companies are thinking about this. Now, the most conservatives who support a a tax on carbon or some kind of price on carbon um, support a revenue neutral price on carbon. So refunding all of that money to the American um, taxpayer. I personally love that idea because I live somewhere between liberal and libertarian in my thinking. And so um, at least like if you're going to have to impact the market system, you want to do it in a way that's revenue neutral. Um, I doubt that's where we'll end up in in, the, in a conversation like this ultimately, but I think there's a lot of good reasons for, for example, a price on carbon to go to R and D budgets around energy solutions. And if industry's at those tables and engaged, then industry can be one of the many parties participating in energy innovation and and R and D going forward. Revenue neutral is too smart; it'd be too difficult to explain. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, I like that idea of we tax it and then we we put those dollars towards uh, developing new technologies and, and a budget and have a financing system available, which I think is kind of the, the system that you're trying to help people perceive and conceptualize. 
So I love that. Tisha, let's talk about your Energy Thinks podcast a little bit. You have been running this for a while, uh, a couple of years or how, how long have you been? Just one season. Just I started, season. it was a, yeah, like many people in the pandemic, I got a puppy and started a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to pass the time. What a great way to connect with folks. Um, what kind of things do you guys talk about? So my, the, the most listened to podcast of all times was Alan Armstrong, who's the CEO of Williams. And he surprised me and everybody with his just insightful um, perspectives on millennials, on the decarbonizing energy future, on shared aspirations. That was so fun. And it really evolved my thinking in real time. And then I just released last week, um, two guys out of Calgary who've started a uh, venture capital fund where they're doing decarbonizing innovations focused on oil and gas industry, and they're partnering with companies. So companies are incubating startups within them, but they have an external structure so they don't get caught up in the in the whole um, bureaucracy of oil and gas companies. Those guys also, I love anybody who changes my thinking in real time. So they were talking about failing fast and the importance of trust and things that just blew my mind in real time and made me think, oh gosh, I'm going to have to do some writing and thinking about failing fast, about the role of trust, about how companies can um, ask different kinds of questions. So that's what we're doing and, um, right now. And the whole second season is focused on game changers. So that's uh, me trying to learn from people who are out there leading in a way that I'm you know, trying to, to, to get our industry to do. So people who are doing it, who are maybe not necessarily ahead because we have to invent this. So there's not a linear path to this. So people who are doing things differently, maybe breaking up the status quo and looking for other ways to think about how oil and gas leaders create the energy future. Awesome. Tisha, if uh, our listeners want to get a hold of you or if they want to collaborate with you or think that there's someone else that you should be speaking with, uh, what's the best way? Yeah, so our website is energythinks.com. You can find the podcast. You can sign up for my weekly. Both of these things are true email. I'm on LinkedIn. And my weekly emails come from my actual real live email address. So it's super easy to get a hold of me. And um, I want to hear your ideas. I want you to make my thinking better. So I hope your listeners will reach out and tell me what I'm missing. And um, to to all millennials, um, when I get it wrong about millennials, push back and tell me how to, how to get it right. And I think we're on this journey together. And pretty soon, Generation Z is going to start making all of your lives miserable. So then you can come to me for comfort and solace. Yeah. For, for some <laughs> therapy about how we need to deal with <laughs> manage a generation that's younger than us and smarter than us. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I'll, I'll take advantage of uh, being in Colorado with you and just uh, give you a phone call and invite you to go skiing so that we can be trapped on I-70 together for four hours and Perfect. have a conversation. Yeah. I'd love that. Not everyone has that luxury, though, so they'll have to resort to email. That's right. Cool. Well, Tisha Schuler, thanks so much. We, we appreciate your time. This has been fantastic. I feel like I learned something, and uh, hopefully our listeners did, too. I loved it. Thanks so much for having me. It was really a pleasure, Mark and Jacob. And uh, thanks for your leadership. For young professionals in oil and gas, we will not make the advancements we need to without efforts like yours.